Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, the Doctrine of Christ, Part 23. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. We've been thinking about how the substitutionary punishment of Christ serves to satisfy the demands of God's retributive justice. And last time we saw that penal substitution actually takes place within the Anglo-American justice system. Particularly we saw in civil law that substitutes are allowed to pay the penalties that are sometimes exacted by the court, and that even in criminal law there are cases of vicarious liability where the guilt of an employee is imputed to his employer, and the employer may be punished on behalf of both of them. And thus, in the American justice system, the satisfactoriness of penal substitution is in some cases recognized. And you'll remember the philosopher David Lewis um, said, as I quoted him last week, that it, this indicates that both sides agree that penal substitution sometimes makes sense, even if none can say how it makes sense. Well, Protestant theologians like François Turretin that we have looked at in the past offered an account to make sense of penal substitution in the case of Christ. Turretin maintains that Christ is not only our substitute, but also our representative before God. Now this requires us to say a word about the nature of substitution and representation. Though these are similar, they are not the same thing. In a case of simple substitution, someone takes the place of another person, but he doesn't represent that person. A great example of this would be a pinch hitter in baseball. The pinch hitter enters the lineup to bat in place of another player. Uh, and he in no sense represents that other player. He is a substitute for the other player, but he doesn't represent him. And that's why the player who is replaced um, is not affected by the performance of the pinch hitter. The pinch hitter's batting average is entirely independent of the batting average of the player that he replaces. He substitutes for the player in the lineup, but he in no sense represents that player. On the other hand, a representative acts on behalf of another person and serves as that person's spokesman. For example, this baseball player also has an agent who represents the player in his contract negotiations with the team. The representative doesn't replace the player, but rather he advocates on behalf of the player. And 
Turretin believes that in dying for our sins, Christ is both our substitute and our representative before God. He was our substitute because he was punished in our place. He's the one who bore the suffering that we deserved. But he also represented us uh, before God so that his punishment was our punishment. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14, 2 Corinthians 5:14, Paul says, For we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Christ died for all, therefore all who are represented by him uh, have died. And a good illustration of this combination of substitution and representation would be the role of a proxy at a shareholders meeting. If we can't attend the shareholders meeting ourselves, we may receive a form in the mail authorizing someone else to serve as our proxy at the shareholders meeting. He votes for us, and because he's been authorized to do so, his votes are our votes. So he is a substitute for us in the sense that he attends the meeting, not we. On the other hand, he's also our representative in that he doesn't vote instead of us, rather he votes on our behalf so that we vote. We vote by proxy. Similarly, Christ was not merely punished instead of us, rather we were punished by proxy, and for that reason divine justice is satisfied. Now, how is it that we are represented by Christ? Well, Turretin proposed two ways in which we are in union with Christ uh, and therefore united with him as our representative. The first way, he said, is by way of his incarnation. He takes on our human nature uh, and therefore becomes our representative before God. Secondly, though, he said he also is our representative in virtue of our mystical union with Christ as believers. He is the head of the bod his body, the church, and believers are united with Christ in this uh, intimate way. Now, theologians will often appeal to this uh, latter union of believers with Christ in order to explain the uh, efficacy of his atonement. Uh, they will say, because we are united with Christ, therefore um, Christ dies for our sins, he represents us before God, and divine justice is satisfied. But it seems to me that such an account is explanatorily circular uh, and therefore untenable. Turretin maintained that it is our union with Christ that is the basis for um, the imputation of our sins to Christ and 
his justification or righteousness uh, being imputed to us. So, on the one hand, it is in virtue of our union with Christ that the imputation of sins and our justification takes place. But the problem is that the mystical union of believers with Christ is available only for those who already are justified in Christ. So that you seem to have an explanatory circle here. In order to have your sins imputed to Christ and to be justified, you need to be in union with Christ. But in order to be in union with Christ, you need to have your sins imputed to him and his righteousness imputed to you. So there's a vicious explanatory circle here. Uh, you need to already be a Christian in order to be a beneficiary of imputation and justification, but to be um, in union with Christ, to be a Christian, you need to have imputation and justification. So it seems to me that what we need here uh, is a relationship of explanatory priority that goes from our union with Christ to our imputation of sins to him and our justification. And I think, therefore, Turretin's first proposal is to be preferred. That is to say, this is a union that is wrought by Christ's incarnation. And I would want to add here his baptism. In his baptism, Jesus identified himself with fallen, sinful humanity. Christ himself, being sinless, did not need to undergo John's baptism for repentance of sins, but he agreed to do it anyway, thereby expressing his solidarity with fallen, sinful mankind. And so I would say that in virtue of his incarnation and baptism, Christ is appointed by God to serve as our proxy before God. It's of little consequence if there's no parallel to this in our criminal justice system uh, because God might even forbid this arrangement among human persons. But as we've seen, he is free to make such an arrangement for himself, for a divine person. The Logos, the second person of the Trinity, has been voluntarily appointed to serve as our proxy um, by means of his incarnation and baptism, so that by his death he might then satisfy the demands of God's justice on our behalf. Any question or discussion of that account of representation and substitution? Steve? In like manner, couldn't you say that uh, in addition to the baptism, also when he took our sins at the cross voluntarily, it'd be like when you look at the verse, for God so loved the world as it was cut off that he gave his son to join us. Or like before the foundation of the world, he was slain. So he took upon himself to form the union. Yeah. Are you saying that with the baptism that he not merely identifies himself with fallen human 
humanity, but this is actually the point at which he becomes the sin bearer and bears our sin? No, I, I think it's, okay. it's a step in the middle to show us examples getting closer. And then when he, in the Garden of Yosemite. I see. And when he, on the cross, he takes it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm quite open to that. Um, it, I think that ultimately Christ doesn't become the sin bearer in the full sense until his death because the consequences and punishment for sin is death. So when our sins are fully imputed to him and God judges him, uh, it must result in his death. Um, it couldn't, God couldn't have halted it before the death and had full satisfaction of divine justice. Some other comment or question? Yes, George. Just a comment on the um, substitutionary aspects of uh, our justice system. I don't know that you need, like you mentioned, an analogy to modern American jurisprudence in order to argue that the atonement is morally sound. Um, but probably the closest thing to um, substitutionary or vicarious punishment in the criminal justice system would be where there's a fine or a financial condition of a sentence, criminal sentence, yes. which often occurs. Yes. Uh, it could be restitution, but usually a fine is involved. And the money for uh, satisfying that condition could come from anywhere. It could be paid by parents. For example, a young person who gets a DUI, the parents probably pay the fine for mm -hmm. the, the, uh, their child. Or uh, the defendant could borrow the money from a bank. Yes. And I don't know that you want to say that the parents are being punished um, as substitutes for the defendant or the bank is being punished as substitute for the defendant. But there's a substitutionary aspect, I guess you could say, of that. And that's very typical that money for to satisfy the financial condition comes from a different source than the defendant. Yes. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And it's a little odd that David Lewis didn't make that application. He, he talks about that in civil law. But as you say, fines are often criminal uh, penalties uh, that could be paid by someone else. So I think you're making a very yeah. good point. Now, I do want to emphasize what George said at the beginning. You don't need to have analogies to penal substitution in the Anglo-American justice system in order to defend its satisfactoriness. In fact, I think that this account by Turretin is just brilliant and satisfactory on its own. But if you do find in our justice system analogs to it, I think this helps the case to say this does satisfy justice. It's recognized by legal theorists who have poured thousands of hours into this uh, justice system. And so where one can find these analogies, I think they're very, very helpful um, in providing parallel illustrations to these theological points. Yes, Bruce? Where you had the uh, supposed conflict between the union imputation, justification. Yes. And, and these, it seems to me, these all happen simultaneously in that they're not a, uh, th this is not a uh, temporal uh, uh, conflict here. That, I understand, Bruce, yeah. and you're, he's making a very good point here. What we're talking about is not a chronological priority. As Bruce says, these could be simultaneous. We're talking about an explanatory priority. That is to say, 
in virtue of what are my sins imputed to Christ and his righteousness imputed to me. It is in virtue of um, our union with Christ and I would say through the incarnation and, and baptism. But uh, you're quite right in, in saying that the precedence here is explanatory and not chronological. Good. Well, now you may remember that Socinus, the um, 16th century Unitarian theologian who attacked penal substitution so vehemently, objected that Christ satisfying the demands of God's justice is incompatible with God's forgiving our sins and remitting our debt. If uh, Christ has paid the debt for us, then there's nothing left to forgive. And so it is incompatible, Socina said, to say that Christ paid our debt and that God forgives us of the debt that Christ has paid. Now, how might we respond to this objection? Well, I think Hugo Grotius um, pointed out a central failing of Socinus theology that is unfortunately all too common today among atonement theorists. And that is to say, Socinus thinks of God as a private person in a personal dispute. For example, a creditor uh, to whom someone owes money. And such a creditor could easily forgive the debt if he so wished. Uh, that's up to him. And we shouldn't think of God uh, in terms of a private party in a personal dispute. Rather, as Grotius points out, God is in the role of ruler and judge of the world and therefore fulfills this legal capacity. And far too many uh, contemporary atonement theorists neglect this legal aspect of God's um, role in the atonement. And instead they turn to these personal private relationships as analogies of the atonement rather to, than to legal analogies. And thereby they overlook God's official role as judge and ruler of the universe. Indeed, I think that rather than conceive of God's forgiveness on the model of the forgiveness that typically takes place among human beings in uh, personal relationships, divine forgiveness is much more like a legal pardon. Forgiveness among human persons is a relinquishing of resentment or bitterness, a change of attitude on the part of the person wronged. But a legal pardon is much more than a subjective change of attitude. It involves the cancellation of the person's um, liability to punishment. Uh, it involves uh, the annulling of the consequences of the crime for which that person is pardoned. So pardon is a legal act which cancels a person's liability to punishment. It's not just a subjective change of attitude on God's part toward us. Now as a legal act, a pardon does not affect the moral status of the person who 
is pardoned. If the president pardons some hardened criminal, in virtue of that pardon, that hardened criminal doesn't suddenly become a virtuous, a loving, a selfless person. Similarly, our legal pardon by God doesn't automatically make us into virtuous, uh, holy, good people. Our legal pardon by God needs to be supplemented by moral sanctification if we're to become all that we are in Christ. So on the one hand, there is justification, which is this legal act whereby God declares us pardoned of our sins. But then there is the lifelong process of sanctification whereby we become increasingly conformed to the image and character of Christ until we go home uh, to be with him in glory. Now, Socinus says um, or implies that God's pardoning our sins would be incompatible with the satisfaction of divine justice by Christ um, on our behalf. If Christ has been punished for those sins, then we cannot be pardoned for those sins. But in fact, pardons are typically given after a person's prison sentence has been fully served and the demands of justice um, satisfied. In fact, you cannot even apply to the Office of Pardon Attorney in the United States until five years after your sentence has been fully served and justice fully satisfied. When you um, receive a pardon, uh, you not only are released from all of the legal consequences of your crime, but that pardon also restores to you all of the civil rights which have been lost as a result of your conviction. For example, the right to vote, the right to serve on a jury, um, the right to uh, attend stockholders meetings uh, and things of this sort. And similarly, our pardon by God not only um, results in the forgiveness of our sins, but it bestows upon us all of the rights of the children of God. Things like adoption as sons, heirs of eternal life, which are in themselves also legal notions when you think about it. So a pardon from God both cancels our liability to punishment, but then also bestows upon us the rights and privileges that are inherent to a child of God. And these pardons, as I say, are fully compatible with the sentence already having been discharged. So um, if Christ has paid uh, our sentence fully, God can therefore say the demands of justice have been met and now I offer you a full pardon if you will receive it. Significantly, pardons can be conditional. The president can offer a person a pardon based upon certain conditions which he must agree to and fulfill if he is to be pardoned. Uh, and if he refuses those conditions, then the pardon, though granted by the president, is inefficacious. It has no effect whatsoever. Now, similarly, God's pardon of us in Christ 
can be conditioned upon repentance and faith on our part. It needs to be freely accepted, in which case it's efficacious. If it's freely refused, then we remain liable for our sins. So God, seeing that the demands of retributive justice have been fully met by Christ's substitutionary punishment, can therefore turn to us and offer us a full pardon of the sins that we have committed. And it's in that sense, I think, that we can say that God has graciously and out of mercy forgiven our sins. Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 and 14 say, And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It is through the cross of Christ that this um, legal punishment that stood against us is set aside and divine forgiveness is made available. So forgiveness in this legal sense is the declaration by God that the punishment has been fully paid and that therefore we are now free. Any comments or discussion about the satisfaction of God's justice and his forgiveness or pardon of our sins? Yes, James. Uh, uh, Bill, um, I have a question about the preemptive nature of God's, um, uh, of, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, pardon, okay, because not only did God forgive us of our sin in the past, we're given forgiven of future sin. Um, in, in this, when it comes to the divine justice, this is to me the most strange aspect of it. Yes. Um, it it's, uh, and I can't think of the economic term, if, if it's net present value or future value or whatever, but, but over time, the pardon becomes actually more valuable because not only are you forgiven for all your sins, but you're, you're going to be forgiven for the other however many million you're going to commit yeah. um, between now and you know, eternity. Yes. So how, how, can you, uh, how can you help me understand that a little okay, bit? Okay, I don't have any firm opinions on this, but I'll let me share with you what Turretin says, and I find very persuasive. Turretin says that um, God does not forgive your future sins. Uh, he says the atonement of Christ is sufficient to cover them once they occur. So as you say, you will be forgiven. But he says you can't be forgiven for future sins because they haven't been committed. And therefore you're not guilty. You can't be guilty of something you haven't done. So this takes tense seriously. This takes the view of time according to which temporal becoming is real and the future doesn't exist very seriously. And that seems quite right. A person in the future who doesn't even exist hasn't done anything wrong. He hasn't committed any sin. So it, it's not as though that person can be forgiven. But what Turretin would say is that the suffering of Christ on behalf of humanity is so superabundant, of infinite value in fact, that it suffices for the forgiveness of anyone's sins once that person commits those sins and turns to God in repentance and faith and 
and thereby appropriates that forgiveness. So this is this old distinction that I think we've talked about before of the difference between redemption accomplished and applied. Okay. It's accomplished at the cross, but it is applied historically over time as people come into existence, sin, repent, and turn to God in faith, and then become members of the body of Christ and, and come into relationship with him. May I just make one quick follow-up Yeah, go point? ahead. Well, I'm, a, a historical example comes to mind. I'm thinking of Gerald Ford's pardon of Richard Nixon, ah. who was never, he was never actually charged with a crime, right. but, but the pardon said, you can't even prosecute this guy. Okay, I, I love this. This is just, okay, okay. this is so good. There are very few conditions on a presidential pardon. But one of them is that you cannot be pardoned for something you have not yet done. You can't get a pardon for future crimes. So in the case of Richard Nixon, Nixon, the acts for which he was pardoned had been done. He, the wrongdoing had been done. Pardons can be given either prior to conviction, during the court process, or after sentencing, okay. and indeed after the sentence has been discharged. But they cannot be given for crimes that have not yet been committed. And that's the point that Turretin is making, and he is exactly on all fours with the American justice system in saying that although Ford could pardon Nixon for the wrongdoing he had done prior to conviction, he couldn't pardon someone for some future crime that he might commit. All right, well, um, let me just wrap up this section very briefly then by saying, as for Socinus' arguments against Christ's death being sufficient to satisfy for humanity's sins, I again consider Turretin's response based on the deity of Christ to be entirely adequate. Uh, on Turretin's view, Christ, in virtue of his deity, undergoes a punishment that has infinite worth before God and is therefore superabundant and able to satisfy for all of the sins of humanity that they ever have committed or ever will uh, commit. And it is the uh, withdrawal of divine fellowship and blessedness uh, that Christ experiences in dying on the cross that is this uh, horrible um, suffering or penalty that Christ pays which suffices to satisfy for all persons at all time. Remember, Socinus didn't think that Christ was God. He was a Unitarian, an anti-Trinitarian. He thought he was just a human being. But if you believe in the deity of Christ, as Turretin did, then it seems to me that his punishment is superabundant and ample to pay for the sins of all of humanity and more. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you that we have been reminded in this way of the superabundance of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus on our behalf. We thank you for the forgiveness and the pardon of sin that you have given us. A pardon, Lord, that does not come without great cost, but was achieved only through the reprobation and suffering of Christ on our behalf on the cross. Thank you for his love, for your love, and for this wonderful uh, pardon and new life that you give us as we are united with him. In his name we pray. Amen. The copyright for the preceding material is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. 
For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.